I'd like you to open your Bible tonight to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 3. One of the prevailing themes, especially in the Old Testament, as God is dealing with his people, and the people are not living as God wants them to live, and the people cry out to God, and God teaches the people. What, one of the problems is, that why is it that there's no revival. You know, why does revival tarry is the title of a book one time? Why are there not showers of blessings? You know, if a drop of water out of a shower was a blessing and a shower full of blessings just means constant, continuous blessing. Because the Bible certainly teaches that God does bless his people. And God tells his people, like in our text tonight, that the reason you're not blessed is spiritual. I know we may talk about this occasionally, but of all the many places in the Bible where God deals with this subject, I picked Jeremiah 3, and it's a very simple thing. We can understand this easily, and we can, I'm sure, relate to it and figure out why there's so much in the church in the world today, so much semi-holiness or... People have become dull of hearing, and, and while there's little enthusiasm or zeal about spiritual things, it's because of what the title tonight is a spiritual drought. There's a drought. We know there's a big one coming on the world, of not of bread and water, but of hearing the Word of God. God uses material and natural things to illustrate spiritual things, as you'll see here in just a moment. But the word drought means to dry or to dry up. Now, with that in mind, let's read verse 1, 2, and 3 of Jeremiah chapter 3. They say, if a man put away his wife and she go from him and become another man's, shall he return to her again? Shall not that land be greatly polluted? But you have played the harlot with many lovers. Yet return again to me, saith the Lord. Lift up thine eyes into the high places and, and see where you have not been laned or laid with. Look beside the road. You are those who sit beside the road and you wait for these lovers, like the Arabian in the wilderness. And you have polluted the land with your whoredoms and with your wickedness. Therefore, as a result of that, the showers have been withholden and there hath been no latter rain, and thou hast had a whore's forehead, and you refuse to be ashamed. I'm sure that the mention of shame there would mean that where there's no shame, there's no sorrow. Where there's no sorrow, there's no repentance. You're maintaining your stubborn, difficult way like the, as he said here, like the forehead of a whore. That's not a good circumstance. The people were not so much moved by the fact that they weren't doing well materially or the rain wasn't falling and there's going to be a difficult time materially. They were, they were set on the way they wanted to live their life, worship what they wanted to worship, when they wanted to worship, and how they wanted to worship. And they had disregard for God and what he had taught because they wanted to do things their own way. God calls that attitude an idolatrous attitude. Because you replace God and his way with something that you want so you can have it your way. And when you do that, 
Well, God lets the drought come. Things just begin to dry up. Put your finger right there in Jeremiah and look with me for a moment. Back to the left in the Psalm, Psalms 32. Psalms 32 and verse 4. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer, Selah. And all of this, as you read this psalm, is because of man's sinfulness, his transgressions against the Lord, his iniquity. Those three words are used in Psalms 32. And the reason that man doesn't do well, as we should know, and I think as we do know, is because of sin. You know, in verse 3 and 4 of that psalm there, you, the effect of the way they live was just languishing and struggling. We're not doing well. Why are we not doing well? We're supposed to do well. We've heard that God's people do well. we got all these promises. Why are we not doing well? Why do we not have any peace? Why are we agitated and bothered and upset at so many little things seemingly all the time? Why are we full of consternation? Sometimes our days are filled with anger and, and bitterness and difficulty. Why is it? That's not supposed to be like that. Go back to Jeremiah 3 and verse 5. He said, will he reserve his anger forever? Will he keep it to the end? Behold, you have spoken and done evil things as thou couldst. People are in trouble. And yet, I think they learn to live with this situation. And I think we talked about that before too. They learn to live with far less than what God has in a climate, a spiritual climate that really doesn't glorify God. And God doesn't want us to live in a drought. Our lives should not be a continuous struggle with trying to find what peace and joy God has promised. We should have peace and joy in spite of what we're going through or where we live or what the circumstances are where we live or whatever country we live in. God's no respecter of persons. What he said here, he says to everybody who believes and whoever is a believer can enjoy what he's promised wherever they are. But when you let things get between you and God, as they did here, when these folks in this time let things get, get between them, things just fall apart. Now, you can major on the negatives and we could spend another night talking about how bad it is and how awful it is, but on the positive side of this message, God's doing a lot of things in this hour. I mean, there are people who are growing. There are people who are finding their way more clearly than they've ever found before. God is saving people. God is raising up things that accomplishes his work, places, people, ministries. There are those in this hour who are being dealt with about serving the Lord, and they're going to do it well. There's just a lot of good things going on. We don't major on it probably as much as we should. But, but in, in spite of all the negative things, God is doing his work, and Jesus is going to come back. And somebody will be looking for him, and somebody will be caught up to meet him in the air, and it is going to be a wonderful experience. That's what's going to happen. But in the meantime, our concern or God's concern here that we read and learn from, God's concern is that there's a lot of people who are being satisfied with less than what God promised. And they, they live in a drought. Their parents lived in a drought. Their grandparents lived in a drought. 
They just passed down to their family tree living conditions that are not glorifying God at all. Things don't get dealt with and people don't live as they should, but, you know, that's just the way it is, they think. So let's go back to Jeremiah chapter 3 and let's begin to look at three things tonight that is the cause of spiritual drought. I mean, the three things he mentions here. And the first one is spiritual adultery. Spiritual adultery. Now, the terms that God uses, the word like harlot, whore's head, those may not be the most pleasant thing for a crowd like this to discuss or talk about, but God uses those words a lot. So it's not for us to try to change what God said, but it's for us to understand what God meant by what he said. Because there is nothing good, glamorous, or glorious about a harlot. There's nothing good about being labeled a whore or, if you're a man, a whoremonger. Because they are, they are terms that describe how God sees them as an abomination, uncleanness, and impurity of life. And it doesn't mean that, that Christian people are living an immoral life like that, but it means that as Christians... We have been espoused. The Bible, there's more of this in the New Testament than it is in the Old, but in the New Testament, we have been espoused to Christ. Paul said, I want to present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. And, and we are in the time of preparation as those chosen ones who will be called his bride. Matthew 25 speaks of a marriage supper that is coming in which the bridegroom comes for his bride. We're in that training period now, that preparation period, the church is, making herself ready. I don't know that all will, but all can. And we are to make ourselves ready to meet the Lord. And when he comes back and he finds us the way he wants us to be, there's going to be a wedding. You're going to be caught up to meet him, and we're going to go somewhere. We're going to forever be with the Lord. So the Bible depicts us as being like, Mary was to Joseph, the, Mary, the mother of Jesus. She was espoused. Espoused means that she was engaged. They were planning to be married. They were not yet married. That's why he was going to put her away privately because she was with child and he knew that wasn't his. And God had to tell them both, it's neither. It, it, it's God's. It's the seed of God and so forth. But anyway, this this theme and this use in the Bible of whore's head and Gone a whoring, as Hosea talks about it many times. I think there's 18 different verses in the Bible where this phrase is used. And it's God's way of showing us that our loyalty, our devotion, and our attention should be towards God. And if you turn away from the Lord to have it another way than his way, God describes that like a woman who has become who has gone a whoring or beside the road here waiting for lovers to come by. And she's one of those type, unreliable, unclean, untrustworthy. God said, you know, the, your Bible says, he didn't say I said, he said they said in verse, verse 1. You know, Jesus referred to this as the law of Moses. It is said in your law that you put away a woman and she can't come back to you. God says, well, I'll take you back. You have done everything wrong 
you have been unloyal to me. You have not been devoted to me. You've complained about what I want you to do. You've even turned from me and turned to these idols on these hills. He talks about laying on the hills. You've gone a whoring after all your lovers. You've had this one and you've had that one. You're loyal to nobody. Your whole life is all about yourself and what brings the most pleasure and satisfaction to you. Now you like to talk about how you are attached and have a relationship with God, but that's not true in the way you live. And so he uses those particular kinds of words. Now, there are three kinds of adultery mentioned in the Bible. There's mental adultery, which the Sermon on the Mount says, if a man look upon a woman to lust after her, the Bible says he has committed adultery with her in his heart. God knows because he can see the hearts. I'm sure that would also be true with a woman lusting after a man. The whole point of it is, naturally and humanly, when a man looks upon a woman or a woman looks upon a man with a desire to, to have some kind of a sexual connection there, just the thought is like the act. It's adultery. It's a grievous thing to God. Then there's, there's adultery mentioned, which is physical, which is the actual either a married man with another woman or two married people. Uh, there are many ways that, the, you know, some diction, dictionaries or some commentaries describe adultery as uh, a married man with an unmarried woman or two married people not married to each other. And anything else, they would say it's just fornication. But I believe because of the mental thing, adultery is just illicit sexual behavior between people. Sometimes when they're married, they wouldn't use the word adultery, but adultery is kind of a bigger word. It takes in all of that. And it, it's a word that is a, is a cutoff between a man and God. One of the things you'll find at the end of the book that God will not tolerate in life is adultery. And the teaching on it is difficult because God's word is pretty narrow when you get right down to it. I mean, people have all have made up churches and men and systems of men have made up all these nifty excuses and ways for why you can do that and yet it's not what the Bible, you know, and, and they've got all these little things they've come up with so that they are not guilty. You know, well, he cheated on me and if he cheated on me, well, I'm innocent and I'm free now. Well, where do you get that? I mean, who, who says it and, and, and what does it mean? Because what if God takes that guilty party and saves him in two months and you've already gone and got yourself in a new vow with a new man? How can you take him back? How can you receive him back? Somebody has to be faithful. Somebody has to be loyal to their vows. But that's another subject anyway. But anyway, there's the physical adultery. That's a second kind. And a third kind of adultery spiritual adultery. You're no longer loyal to God. You're loyalty to something else. Maybe you're serving yourself. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's a, a career. Look in Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 6. He said, The Lord also said to me in the days of Josiah the, the king, Hast thou seen that which backsliding Israel hath done? She has gone upon every high mountain and under every green tree, and there played the harlot. And then in verse 8, And I saw when for all the causes whereby backsliding Israel committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a bill of divorce. 
Yet her treacherous sister Judah feared not, but went and played the harlot also. That was the southern two, two tribes. And it came to pass, verse 9, through the lightness of her whoredoms, that she defiled the land and committed adultery with stones and with stocks. That is, she began to worship idols. The stocks or trees that were fashioned into some form of a deity or some silversmith fashioned some little god out of some piece of gold and that became a centerpiece in her home where they did her obeisance and actually talked to that stone. That's, that's a type not only of idolatry, but the practice of idolatry, the Bible would call it spiritual adultery. You have left off your loyalty and your allegiance to God to go serving other gods which give you more pleasure or you derive more satisfaction from. And the act of committing adultery is an act, biblically speaking, in contrast to the natural act, it's an act of whoredoms. And when you have all kinds of things you're loyal and allegiance to, whether, again, it's, it's your money, your career, whatever it is that gets your time and your attention, that becomes your God. For where your heart is, that's where your treasure is. And if the treasure in your life and the treasure in your heart is not God in his way, then it's something else. But that's a choice that they made. And these people made some bad choices. But God didn't just outright destroy them. He calls their attention to the fact, look, look at what your adulterous lifestyle has caused. I called you, he said, I called you out of a place when you were nobody. Nobody cared about you, and I drew you with tender, loving arms through the desert and gave you the land and gave you a law and said, you and you only are my people. And I warned you, I said, now the land you're in was so abominable that I've sent you in as executioners to get rid of all these people. I don't want any of them to live, not even any of them. Destroy everything, especially destroy all their gods, go up on the high places where these people put these shrines and on these high hills and go up there and destroy everything, grind it to powder. I don't want you to have any influence of that at all. That's why he told me, he said, if you don't destroy all these people, whoever you let left eventually will cause you to do what they do, and I'll have to destroy you like I destroyed them, which is what happened to Israel and then happened to Judah. It was their idol worship, their uncleanness before God. That was why he had to get rid of them. We read this, and we realize that that spiritual adultery, maybe it's covetousness. Maybe it's living for money. Maybe it's living for gain or success or become somebody or whatever it is. Maybe it's something like that. But I think this, in this hour, I think he also can refer here to an apostate church. Turn to Isaiah 1 just for a moment. You're the one book back to the left. One, Isaiah chapter 1, look at verse 21. Isaiah 1 and verse 21. How is the faithful city become a harlot? It was full of judgment. Righteousness lodged in it, but now murderers. Thy silver is become dross, and thy wine mixed with water. Everything changed. When you got settled in the land and you began to take note of how, how much fun those heathens were having and how ugly their festivals were and all the sexual activity and all the orgies and stuff that took place in the worship of these deities 
They liked along after that. And they were tempted, and they did. They intermarried with these people, and God had to destroy them. But he said, you know, you were once righteous. You were once in right standing. You were doing things right. You had a right heart. But now you have changed, and your wine is nothing but tainted water, flavored water. There's nothing genuine about you anymore. God is showing us this is not the kind of people that God wants to serve him. These are not his people. Keep your finger in Jeremiah and go over the other side of Jeremiah to uh, Ezekiel 16. Ezekiel chapter 16 and verse 30. These are some strong words. Ezekiel 16 and verse 30. How weak is your heart, saith the Lord God. Seeing you do all these things, the work of an imperious, whorish woman. Imperious means a brazen, hard-headed, in-your-face type thing. Seeing you do all these things, the work of an imperious, whorish woman, in that you build your eminent place in the head of every way and make it your high place in every street and hast not been as a harlot in that thou scornest higher but as a wife that committeth adultery which taketh strangers instead of her husbands they give gifts to all whores but you give gifts to all your lovers and so forth again the, the definitions that, that dictionaries have today Again, what I'm about to say is really unpopular, but it's true. Some would define a prostitute as a woman who sells her body for gain. For whatever reason, she sells her body. But she's for hire, whereas a whore is someone who does not. They're just promiscuous young men as whoremongers and promiscuous young women with many partners, just... That's what we do today. That's what kids do today, and that's what people do. And after all, I mean, I'm no different than anybody else. So you've known many different boys. You've known many different girls. You're a part of that scene. You fit right in with the, with the way things are going in society. You're cool, and yet you're lost because you can't do anything. You don't do that. You don't do that and be a, be a Christian. You know, the Bible, what if today it was the same as it was in the Bible days that if a girl marries and she was not a virgin, that she would be in deep trouble? There was a way you could tell if a girl was a virgin when they got married. That's another parental sermon. But what if you could not marry today if you weren't a virgin? Would it, would it be the death of marriage? No, because on the positive side, there's, there's a lot of women that have morals and have convictions and put God before pleasure and put God before affections and put God before a him or a her. And their constitution is embracing what God said that I will not do that. I'll wait until I'm married. But alas, you give yourself over to the dating game. You start messing around. You start fooling around. I guarantee you, when you start doing stuff like that, it's only a matter of time until you mess up. And your friends think it's okay. Hey, you finally crossed over. But the Bible might just label you, if you do that again and again and keep doing that, and the next boy, you might just be a whore. 
And what an awful thing it is. What if I told you that Hollywood, some of the most glamorous people around, could possibly qualify as glamorous whores? I mean, you read about all the escapades, and for a certain amount of money, they'll disrobe themselves in front of cameras and all the crews. There's a lot of people there with all kinds of, you know, and they just become naked for money. Now, that's a whorish spirit. All the money that they make, I wonder, I just wonder this, just as a preacher's wonder. You wonder those people that make multiple millions of dollars a year, how much of that ever gets in the Lord's hands? You wonder how many of these athletes that make, I figured up one the other day that made over 400000 a week. Wouldn't it be nice if he was in a church and he put a $40,000 check every week in the box? That might be trouble. I don't know. But I'm just saying that God doesn't have any rule in people's lives. And those He could. Of course, he's God. But we have a choice, too. He gave us a will. We can make decisions. We're going to make decisions what we're going to do from now on up to this point for the rest of your life. God lets you be in charge as far as you can tell. And if you want to disrobe and you want to get on, do those kind of things because people are doing that today or you're curious or I wonder, God might, he probably won't stop you, but he also might reject you. So, you know, you need to count the cost and, and see if you really would rather be in league with something that's dark and dead, or would you rather just be strong with your will and not weak of heart? that Isaiah spoke of, that you be strong and you hold fast to the integrity that you gave to the Lord when you said, I will trust you. I will trust you for a mate. I will trust you for any information I need, any experience I need to have. I'll trust you for it. Get back to the word horse and harlot. Or like Hosea talks about, he said, they've gone a whoring after other gods. There is a kind of lust in the church, church or a person or a nation, any of the three. There's a kind of lust that wants to change things all the time. You know, even in the wilderness, they couldn't see God. When they came into the promised land, they couldn't see him. There was nothing they could bow to. There was no image that they could put around their neck. They told Saul, we want a king. Of course, it was his two sons that was the cause of it, but we want a king. Saul said, this is not a good thing. We, we want a king. We want somebody we can look at and somebody we can, all of that. And he said, all right. And they got it, and that was the beginning of the end. But there's something about people that just doesn't want to hold fast to God and his way. There's something that, and I think God allows that season of dullness to come in. And you look for something else to do. And then you begin looking around. All the people that are having fun, look at that church. Well, they're always having fun over, over there. So you go over there and, and it may not be what you want. Or they go over there. But there is a problem that when, when people turn away from God to do things their way, when they redesign the ways of God, 
to do it their way, they would never call it idolatry. I don't know of anybody that would ever call a system of man idolatrous. But I think there are almost people who, who view some religious situations as idolatrous. It becomes a God. It's not your attachment to God, it's to that system. And in that sense, I think they've become spiritual adulterers, gone a whoring after other gods. They want to serve other gods. Second thing, not only is there spiritual adultery, that's the cause of spiritual drought, but it's conformity to the world. Just being conformed to the world. We'd usually through media, through the educational system, because you have to go to school, you're around people that are not Christian, you're around kids that don't talk to you about spiritual things, but about the latest on TV or the latest episode or the latest adventure or the have you heard and the styles and the mannerisms and the music you watch and how you walk and how you talk. I remember a parent one time had to rebuke his little child because having gone to school for, you know, school started and after a couple of weeks or maybe a month in school, the kid was acting goofy. And they were, just acting silly. You know, just like that. That's what I'd call goofy. And finally, the father had to, had to set a little law down and lay a law down and realized they've learned this from being around other kids. They didn't learn this from their family. They didn't learn it from their friends in church. They had to learn it from kids outside. You know, people who are not being taught and trained how to live and how to be, well, the Lord's people. Everything is goofy, but they're allowed to watch most anything. Their parents watch some pretty raunchy stuff, and the kids watch it too. Because these parents today that did drugs back in the, well, I could say 60, but the 60s are grandpas now. But kids who grew up and having had drugs and done some miserable things, they feel like hypocrites to not let their kids do that, so they let them do that. There are parents today who allow their children to bring their girlfriend into the house, into the bedroom, and spend the night. I even know one place, one situation where she was allowed to move in and live with the family in the boy's bedroom with him as though they were married. Do you suppose that would bring spiritual drought? What if I told you it brought death? Death and apparently a lot of confusion. Nothing is right since then. Nothing has gone since then the way it used to go before that. Mentally, physically, materially, and I'm sure financially. It's a drought. But they don't know how to deal with that because they don't, they don't see that's the problem. Their conformity to the world is that the world rules me. The systems of this world rule me. It rules my speech. It rules my dress. I am not about to wear a modest dress to school when all my friends are wearing tight jeans. Now, the reason a person would think like that is because of the influence of the world. Because you know if you were a, a nice-looking girl and you wore modest clothes, you would be criticized for it. You'd be put down for it. 
And there's not a lot of courage today in a lot of kids to, to have moral conviction. There just isn't. And I'm not saying any of you, if it applies, that's one thing. But it, it looks like to me, just like here and just like in the world today, the world has dressed our children, has given them the music that they admire. They have to have it. They have to have it. You see kids walking around with earphones, and you see them walking through the mall. I don't go to malls. I've been to one. We've been to one, late, what, this past year? You think, what is wrong with it? Well, it's the music. It's the beat. It's the demonic influence controlling the thinking and the actions. And it leads, when you get into the drug culture, those of you that were there know, drugs and music are, are tied together. They sleep in the same bed. And that's what you get in the world. You get it little by little. It just comes in little bitty packages. Just like your spiritual growth is little by little, your, your spiritual death comes little by little also. You just keep going downhill and downhill. And it seems like it's so much fun until one day you're 30 years old. You've known 50 different men or 100. You've laughed and cut up and been drunk and been high. And you look in the mirror one day and there's not a soul in this world wants you. You look worn out and used up. And then you realize how much of a fool the devil made of you. But that's what the world does to people. It makes us unfit for the kingdom and eventually makes us feel unfit for anybody else. Then you develop that attitude, that belligerence, that anger, that in your face loud stuff. And a lot of times you let your body go. Who cares? Defiance. That's what the world does to people. And it seems like no matter how much you warn people and how much you point these things out, it changes nothing. But at least, at least we have heard that and at least we, we know about that. But there's just this inward confusion, this uncertainty, this get home when you're by yourself after done what you did with who you were with, where you went. And he can't escape it. You cannot. I've been there. I know what I'm talking about. You cannot escape that feeling you get when you're by yourself. There's something about you that's just not, not worth much. Somehow you inherently know intuitively that's not right. I'm not right. And I think the second highest death rate amongst teenagers today is suicide. They've got a weak mental game. They don't have much strength to resist what the world's throwing at them because of the fear of their friends. Walking alone, though none go with me, still I will follow, is only a song. It's not a reality. And consequently, you have these things happen to people. And when they happen to us as a group, it, be, it becomes a very difficult situation because God isn't blessing anything. Turn to Colossians 3. We'll come back to Jeremiah, I'm sure, later on. But turn to Colossians chapter 3. And look at verse 1, 2, and 3. If you then be risen with Christ, seek those things on channel 9. If you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above and not on things on the earth. For you are dead 
and your life is hid with Christ in God. You belong to him. He bought you with a price. And when Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall you also appear with him in glory. Now, I think that's something to look forward to. I think that's something we can look forward to, and that's a real promise that God has made. But it, it comes at a cost. You don't just appear with him because you go to church, because you seek him. And obviously the meaning is when you seek, you're going to find something that's going to change your life, give you courage, give you strength, help you to say no and absolutely not. That's what you're going to find. Now, a third thing that's the cause of spiritual drought is inward pollution and uncleanness. Inward pollution and uncleanness back in Jeremiah 3, we may not outwardly commit the sins of 1, verses 1 and 2. We may not be guilty of actually doing those, those kind of things. Maybe we have not worshipped idols on the high places. Remember the psalmist said, I will look into the hills and which cometh my help. Well, I would put a question mark at the end of that because it reads in Psalm 121, I will look into the hills and which cometh my help. My help comes from the Lord, not those hills. And he's talking about that. That's not the place to look for help at these shrines and at these idol worshipers and, and these astrologists and horoscopes and fortune tellers and all that kind of stuff. That's not where you find your help. You may not outwardly commit a whole lot of sins that people do, but, but what about your on the inside? Again, where your constitution is, where the command of your will is where you in command of your will are second Corinthians seven and verse one. There's a, there's a word there that, that says this having therefore these promises dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves of filthiness of flesh and spirit perfecting holiness in the fear of God. How do we cleanse ourselves? by taking heed to the word. Listen to me, all of you. If we, by choice, do not take heed, if we do not give heed to the word for whatever reason, then we'll give heed to something else. There's no neutral zone in this life. It's an either or. It's you either are or you are not. You either do or you do not. You either will or you will not. But you can do what is right. Now, whether or not you will depends on your will. Depends on your choice. You can. You can. God gives us the choice. Seek those things which are above. He won't make you. And the devil can't keep you from doing it. It's choice. I desire to seek those things which are above. I desire to know what is right. We may not outwardly commit those sins in Jeremiah, but he said... Cleanse yourselves from all filthiness of flesh and spirit and perfect holiness in the fear of God. Now, in Mark 7, listen to what Jesus said in verse 21. He said, for from within, out of the heart of men, this is on the inside. This is, if it comes out, this is where it comes from. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, Abortion, uh, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, 
lasciviousness, an evil eye, which is probably covetousness, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. Listen to this. All these things come from within and defile the man. If I were to ask you tonight, can we be defiled by adulteries? Can we be defiled by stealing, lying, cheating? Can we be defiled by foolishness, lack of wisdom? Can we be defiled from, by covetousness or wickedness or deceit and so forth? Jesus said, this is why you're defiled. It's not so much the act. The act is only an indication of what rules the inside. What you do on the outside is a, is a slave to the, to the command made from the inside. If you want to be lazy, you're lazy inside first. If you want to be ugly, you're ugly inside first. If you want to be loose and unclean, it's on the inside before it comes out. You think about it. It's part of your, it's part of your thinking process. And that's the kind of person you are. That's the way it is. Another reason why there's a spiritual drought is because of hardness of your heart and a lack of concern. Remember back in Jeremiah chapter 3 again, he said you have a whore's forehead. When he talks about a whore's forehead, he's talking about defiance. I don't care what you say, I'm not going to do it. Well, well, that's just, that's just his opinion. Yeah, I know the Bible says that, but you got to realize that, you know, that was, that's an old book. And I mean, who can prove that's the kind of defiance that God says you are hard of head and stiff of neck. In this case, because of your connection with idols and the effect idols are having on you and my rejection of you, you have a whore's forehead. You're lusting after things out there that God is going to judge. And you think of that. What is not of God? What does not come from God, God must judge. In the end, it will be judged. And the only thing that's left is of God. Not man, not lofty-eyed, not noble things. Only what God has given will last. Everything else is going to be judged. Now, if I connect myself with something that God is going to judge, then I'll be judged. I myself will be judged. You know, back to something I said a while ago about the immoral attitude today. People call it a sexual revolution. Schools are cooperating by assisting in the safe sex of this hour by providing things that they think at least will protect. You know, they say, well, they're going to do it anyway, so let's do what we can to keep it from becoming whatever. On my trusty Google expertise, I found today that 0.06% of all 10-year-olds have had a sexual experience. 10. 10 years old. And 1.6 or 7% of all 11-year-olds and 2.4% of all 12-year-olds have been involved in some kind of a sexual experience. Whatever happened to baby dolls that are playing and cutting out little figures and giggling little girls. What is happening to boys at that age are talking about what they're talking about and experimenting? And there's no more shame or remorse in what they're doing because we're just having fun. 
I mean, hey, God made us that way. Didn't our president one time talk about some immoral behavior he had? That's not sex. Oh, no, that's not sex. Look at the drought that's come on the kids today. I don't have all the stats here about the different kinds of diseases. You cannot have this kind of stuff going on without somebody catching something and spreading it to multiply to other people. AIDS is still a bad thing no matter if the media is not talking about it. It's still a deadly disease. There are other sexually transmitted diseases that are so bad that they should prevent marriage. They should. Because all it can do is get worse. You cannot be that, have that freedom in that area like that without getting in trouble somewhere and ruining your life. You're bypassing the real meaning of love because there's no love involved. It's lust. Oh, we're in love with each other. You're probably in lust with each other. And God speaks like that. I mean, we talk like that about a natural problem. And God speaks like that about the way people are spiritually. They just want to experiment with this and without that. They don't want to draw conclusions. They don't want to be convicted. They don't want to draw the line tight and say, I will not cross. They just don't want to do that. They want to have it their own way. And where's the shame today? Occasionally, you'll run by a channel on the tube, and out of curiosity is what that is. I did that once. What is that? I cannot, for the, God knows, a brief moment, I cannot believe the kind of language that I heard from women. The words that they use in describing, there's no shame. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 6. You're almost there if you're in chapter 3, but Jeremiah chapter 6, look at verse 15. Were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? He's talking about the daughter of his people. Again, these are the words that God uses. Were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. Neither could they blush. Therefore, This is coming, therefore they shall fall among them that fall. At the time that I visit them, and they shall be cast down, saith the Lord. Look in chapter 8 and verse 12. Same thing. Were they at all ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not ashamed at all, though neither could they blush. She said it twice. They couldn't even blush. Their hearts were so hard. They were so much into my thing, the way I want to do it. And spiritually, this is what we're going to do. And if if the priests want to do all that, they'll let them do that. But we're going over here to the Moabites or the Amorites or whatever ites were around. I mean, after all, what's the big deal? Malachi 3, look, I'll I'll bring my offerings to God. God wants you to kill something. Some of the Jews offered their firstborn to a stick offered their children to a, a stone, some kind of a rocket somebody painted or chiseled out because of their lust to receive something from that rock or that stick. God says, you folks are an abomination to me. I think the words gone a whoring are, are, are words that do really describe the turning away of God's people from God. And if you were to look that up, you'd find in Psalm 106 and Hosea 4 
and verse 12. It's the people that have no real interest in God. They could have, but they found something better. So what do you do? How do you fix something like that? Is there anything that we can do? Is there any instructions for the church on how to remedy this, at least in our family, with our children, our church? Is there something we have given to us, spoken to us that we can do? Yes. First of all, number one, and you might think, well, that's not much of a point. We know that, but you'd be surprised how many people really can't cope with first. You must be willing to believe that God will forgive you. You must be willing to believe that. A lot of kids in church have heard that the whole life. Say you're sorry and it's all right. They said they were sorry, but nothing changed. There was no real repentance. But you got to really believe it. What did he say to Israel? Again, in chapter 3 and verse 1, what did he say? He said, at the end of that verse, he said, yet return again to me. What does that mean? That he'd take them back? Who in here was the worst of us? I mean, after me. Who was the worst? I had a problem on the day that I got saved in that barrage of thoughts that were hitting my mind while I was still standing in the back of the church in the pew while just as I am started, could he forgive me? Would he? Is he willing to forgive me? Because my flashbacks were all the times in my past where I knowingly did wrong, knowing I should not do it. I did it anyway because I wanted to. In disregard of God and turning my back on what my heart, even though I wasn't a Christian, intuitively I knew what I was about to do was wrong. I knew it was wrong. I knew it was. But I did it anyway. And there was a little voice that comes with that decision that lodges itself in your mental hard drive. And when you think about trying to get right with God, it says to you, well, why would God forgive you? You know, you willfully sinned. And the Bible says if you willfully sinned, that's it. Well, you willfully sinned. And you're thinking, boy, I did. I will. Well, there's no no hope for me. There's just no hope. There's no way I can be saved. But look at verse 1 again. At the end of that, he said, yet return again to me, saith the Lord. Can we? I've been pretty bad. I've done so many bad things. You're probably a part of a crowd that's done a lot of bad things. Can you still return? What about all the bad things you did? What are you going to do with that? We'll deal with that in a minute. Can you return to the Lord? Yes, you can. Look at verse 14. Verse 14 says, Turn, O backsliding children, saith the Lord, for I am married unto you. He, you know, he could put them away, but he never divorced them. He may put her out of the house, but he didn't divorce her. He said, turn, O backsliding children, saith the Lord, for I am married unto you. And I will take you, one of a city and two of a family, and I will bring you to Zion. And I'll treat you with, love you with pastors and so forth. Look at verse 22. Verse 22. Return, you backsliding children, and I will heal your backslidings. Everything that 
you did and the reasons for which you did it, I will heal you of it and you won't do that anymore. You'll be set free from, from the weakness of your heart and your mind. Return, you backsliding children, I will heal your backslidings. Behold, we came unto thee, for thou art the Lord God. Nobody else can forgive us. Nobody else can turn us away from our sins. Even as an unfaithful wife, even a nation that was described as a whorish woman that gone a-whoring after all these other gods on every green hillside, under every tree, not for high, I mean, you gay, you're just a whorish woman, like a nation. And God said, you come back to me, I'll take you back. I'll take you back. I married you. I chose you from the beginning. Let me tell you something about that, about God's grace. He that started a good work, when he picked you up out of the miry clay, just like he picked Israel out of Egypt, when he brought you to himself, he knew you weren't perfect. He knew you weren't going to just do everything perfect. He knew that the process of taking you from, from where you were to what he wants in the end was going to be long, tedious, and difficult, and painful. But, and he knew that only he can do this. Only God can bring you here and keep you from quitting, falling away. But he said he'll do that. He saved his people. They fell away, and he said, you come back. You come back, and I will not only receive you, but I'll heal I will heal your backslidings. That means, secondly, that part of the healing process or the, the deliverance process is repentance. Verbal repentance. You declaring to God your sinful state. I know what I'm like. I'm aware of how wicked my heart really is. And I am deeply and terribly sorry for what I have done. There must be sorrow and repentance, deep sorrow in order to repent. Let me tell you something. Only God can make it that way. Godly sorrow brings what? Repentance. Repentance is just not a, I'm sorry, man, I shouldn't have done That was terrible. I shouldn't have done Repentance is a brokenness about what you did that you don't ever want to do it again, and you turn away from that, and you walk away from it with a constitution, a character on the inside that says, I will not go back to that. And a lot of people say, well, I don't know if I can or not. Well, what if a man says the same way about smoking? I don't know if I can stop smoking or not. I don't, I don't know if I can quit. What if God spoke out loud in the room and said to that person that all right, if you cannot quit and you're so drawn and controlled by that cigarette, or by that food, or by that TV, or whatever it is you're controlled by, the next puff you take on a cigarette is going to be lung cancer, incurable, and you're going to die. Next strawberry is a bad case of hives, whatever that is. You'd be surprised what you can turn away from when you have to. A woman, a young mom, she could be feeling bad, aching, no sleep and a baby that is not doing well, fidgety and crying. And it's amazing how her life is ruled by that child, but she can do things that she would have never done before that because she has a constitution. That baby needs me. If I don't get up and minister to this baby, nobody will. And I don't want to from the natural, but I will. 
And there is a sense in which God has made all of us with that kind of a will. You can do whatever it is you need to do. You can. And you can be whatever it is that you know that you've got to be. You can be that. And if you have to overcome, you will overcome. Because if you don't overcome, you die, you'll overcome. It doesn't mean you're, you're not afraid. It doesn't mean that fear isn't all around you everywhere. Fear could be everywhere. It just means it doesn't control you. You've got to do what you have to do. I used to tell myself, you know, you do the thing you fear the most, and the death of fear is certain. Whether it's walking home at night or finding your way through the Rocky Mountains, which is a pretty dark place, you do the thing you fear. And the death of what you fear is certain. But you've got to take a step. It's like repentance. You can be truly sorry for what you did and not turn away from it. But when you repent, you not only turn away from it, but you say, I'm not going back. I still remember faintly, sort of, the day I got saved when I was up front, kneeling on that side of the church right there. The fear, what if I, what if I do like everybody else I've, I've seen come forward? They all go back the way they were. No, nobody really lives this life. And I remember that day, some, my thoughts collected in some way in which I said, I am never going back to the way I used to live. That's my decision. The devil tempts. Boy, he tempted hard, long, and strong. But if you resist the devil, he'll flee from you. But you've got to repent. When you repent, you turn away. Look in Isaiah. You're close to it. Just go back. A few pages to Isaiah 55, to the left. Isaiah 55 and verse 7. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, which means apparently he was there before or never has been. But let him return unto the Lord, and what will God do? He will have mercy upon him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon you have got to love the idea of amazing grace. Because we look around in here, the, the few of us that are here tonight, some of us are hugely thankful for the grace of God that rescued you from that destruction and the life you were about to live that would destroy you. And yet God, through no credit to yourself, picked you up, brought you to him, begin a change of your life that will continue until the Lord comes. And now you miss the blessing when things aren't going well for you and you know they should and you have experienced his goodness. This is why we are quick to repent because something's not right here. What's going on here is not the way it's supposed to be. Is there something wrong in my life? Am I missing it somewhere? We start dealing with ourselves. Because God said he'd bless us, didn't he? And repentance is a game changer. You've got to repent before you can come to the Lord. Because you see, with repentance comes dedication. Let a man offer himself without spot unto God. Remember that in Romans 12? On an altar, it's your reasonable service. You do that and everything will begin to fall in place. It's not church anymore. It's you and the Lord. And finally, thirdly, the way to fix all of this 
is communion and prayer. Spend time with the Lord. Like the song said, take time to be holy. Speak off with thy Lord. Abide in him always. Da, 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 da. Remember that song? You never sang it? Prayer. Prayer is communion. It's you talking to God. It's you bringing your burdens before him and laying it there or all your care, the scripture says, bringing all your care before him and leaving it there. In Jeremiah 3, he said it like this in verse 4. He said, Wilt thou not from this time cry unto me? My father, thou art my guide of my youth. Crying out to God. We can do that every day while we drive around, while we're doing our homework, while we're doing our housework. You can be studying the Bible and stop right in the middle of it because of a thought. Because of some stirring from, from the Lord. Prayer isn't always, now I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul to keep if I should. It's not like that. Prayer is communion. You listen and you talk. It's conversation between you and God. You can't hear his voice always, but a lot of times we do answer what we think he said in our heart. We have an impression. Seems like that's what God would say, and so we respond to that. I'm sure sometimes that is the way the Lord speaks to us. But prayer, when you're alone, when you're wherever you are, again, those moments in which you're sitting in church some, sometimes and you're thinking about your day, you didn't do so well today. Things didn't go well. Bring it to the Lord. Cast all your care upon him. You know why? He careth for you. God cares for us. God is concerned about each one of us. He chose us. He is doing a work in us. He is refining us and preparing us for the coming of Jesus. And everything else along the way that interrupts your manner of life, if it's something that's a challenge or a threat, take it to the Lord. Pray about it. Pray about it. You just talk to God about it. Your prayer doesn't have to be formal. Mine certainly aren't. I know praying publicly for, for me is sometimes a... I have to search for words to, to make a public prayer. That's just how sometimes how artificial it is. Because like you, when we pray in our homes or in when we're by ourselves, you don't do a whole lot of that. And now most gracious and kind, loving Father, though I do try to exalt God, I want to thank you, Lord, for your majesty and your goodness and, and your grace and your kindness to me and my wife and our family, uh, all the good things you do. I'm just thankful for it. And yet when you get in a big room and a lot of people want you to pray as most gracious and loving Heavenly Father, and you think, that don't sound right coming from me. Or praying for food sometimes. You know what the easiest way for me to pray for food is? Lord, I give you thanks for this food in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you're in a crowd or you're a visitor, and, they, and then, you know, the visiting, whoever asks you to, uh, Brother Hamilton, pray for our food. I think, if I prayed what I normally pray, they'd think, is that all you got? 
But I probably would. At my age now, I probably would just say, Lord, I will thank you for this food today, our gathering together. I ask you to bless it in Jesus' name. Amen. Everybody's hungry. Say amen. They get after that food. I'm just saying you're talking to God. He knows your heart. You don't need to add to anything. He knows what you need before you ask him. He even said that before you pray, I will answer. Before you even make it a matter of prayer. You prayed this morning, oh God, and you went to the mailbox an hour later and there was your answer. But that letter was mailed two or three days ago. Before you ever prayed, God had it in the mail. You, you know what I'm saying? This is all a part of his plan, but it's you talking to God, communing with him, bringing your problems, bringing your heart, opening yourself up to God. Let me close with this. You know this one by heart. And if my people in Shelbyville, Kentucky, or wherever you all are out there in the, the wireless world, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then, then will I hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin. I will heal their land. I want us to have a new building, a better one. Not necessarily a brand new building from ground up, but something better. Is there a reason that for the last 20 years we've been here because we're missing it somewhere? I don't know. Maybe we ought to be prompted and concern ourselves with whether or not that's God's will for us. And if it is, it would seem to me that it is. That's the way I pray. It would seem to me that it is. Though if the Lord came, we can leave here. We don't owe anybody a nickel or dime, no obligations, nothing, no any. We can just raise our hands and go north, go up. We have nothing, just we're free to go. At least we're not attached to a bank with a loan where we have to maybe stay and pay it off. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. But we can get out of here. But we can pray that. Can't we pray for that? Lord, give us... Give us a leading somewhere. Amen? Just deliver us from any kind of drought. I don't want to get used to living in dry and thirsty conditions. I want it to be juicy. I would like to see Wednesday night become a juicy night. I'd like to see Wednesday night, one night, a Wednesday night in which everybody comes together and everybody had one fine day. Everybody had a really good day. Woo! good day today. The mail was good. The kids minded. He was good. She was good. Everything worked fine. And just came to church ready to let go. Wouldn't that be nice? Have some juice dripping right off the ceiling. Instead of us dragging around another year, another five years, another ten years, just dragging through the week showing it on our weekday nights through our singing, our preaching, and listening, everything, just dragging. I don't want any droughts. I want my roots kicked into the water. I want my leaf to bud. If it aggravated everybody in the church, I still want it to bud. Amen. I want to have an honest, genuine, sincere 
God-designed, God-sent spiritual zeal. Not a show, not an act, but a genuine, honest zeal. That's what we all need. We come to church with purpose. I'm here for a reason. And I'm going to leave with something more than what I brought. Amen. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, ask you to bless your word to the hearts of your people. You know that we need it. We need to understand what you're saying. We need to be affected and influenced by what you say. Help us to give the more earnest heed to what we have heard. And I pray that at no time, Lord, will this precious word slip from our hearts. Thank you for being gracious and kind and loving and tenderhearted and merciful. Thank you for drawing us to you, for opening our eyes and just simply loving us. May your blessing rest upon each and every person here tonight, those that watch, those that listen. May we take a measure of what you gave us home with us, and may it stay with us. Lord, as the day begins to shine brighter, may we be there to shine with it. I ask in Jesus' name, amen.